A few years ago, Richard Branson gave a talk to a room full of people who were about to start their own businesses. Dressed in running shoes and jeans, he looked every bit the informal, rule-bending billionaire as he took questions and gave advice to these would-be entrepreneurs. At one point, he told a story about when he was at an airport in Puerto Rico, waiting with a few dozen other people for a plane to the British Virgin Islands, when the airline they were booked on unexpectedly cancelled the flight. But when most of us would start scrambling to find a hotel and reschedule the trip, Branson rolled up his sleeves. And I went to the back of the airport, I hired a plane. I was 28 years old at the time, so I took a bit of a risk. I got a blackboard and I wrote $29 one way to, to the Virgin Islands and went out to all the people who got bumped and filled my first plane. Uh, and I ended up the next day ringing up Boeing and saying, do you have any second-hand 747s for sale? So, um, you know, so... I like this story because it neatly captures an idea about entrepreneurs that many of us, whether consciously or not, have internalized. That is, to start a new business, you need to be comfortable placing big, risky bets, regardless of the outcome. In contrast to his fellow passengers, Branson took the initiative. Spotting an opportunity, he moved from a cancelled flight to chartering a plane, to starting an airline in a few bold steps. And looking beyond Branson, we find similar stories about successful entrepreneurs and risk playing out all over the world. Think of Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of university, Jeff Bezos giving up a well-paying job on Wall Street, or Sarah Blakely putting everything on the line to start up Spanx. These stories of risk-taking founders have all passed into business school lore. But what if their status as legends has blinded us to what's really going on? What if the kinds of risks being taken by successful entrepreneurs are actually much smaller and more calculated than they appear to be at first sight? Hello, I'm Michael Wade, a professor at the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, and this is Management Under the Microscope. In each episode, we take a widely held assumption about business, management, or leadership, and we put it to the test giving you an inside look at the facts behind the myths and helping you to become a better, more informed manager. Today, we're going to discover some surprising truths about entrepreneurs and risk. As a researcher of business technologies, management and leadership, I spend a lot of time trawling through academic journals, trying to dig up interesting insights and uncover big ideas that will move my own thinking forward. But while there's been quite a bit of research into the topic of risk and entrepreneurship, the results to date have been pretty inconclusive. A meta-analysis, which means taking a bunch of studies on the same topic and throwing them together into a massive mathematical model, was conducted on the topic in 2001 and published in the prestigious Journal of Applied Psychology. The findings from this study showed that entrepreneurs did indeed have a higher propensity to take risks than regular managers, especially when it came to focusing on business growth. But then, three years later, another even larger meta-analysis was conducted and published in the very same journal, concluding exactly the opposite, that entrepreneurs were in fact less risk-tolerant than average managers. The research literature has been bouncing back and forth ever since. There's no evidence in academic studies that shows that entrepreneurs have a higher propensity to take risks when you compare them to the general population. None. That's Cyril Bouquet, one of my colleagues at IMD. He and I and another colleague recently wrote a book on innovation called Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas. He believes that 
when it comes to entrepreneurs and risk, mathematical models are not giving us the answers that we need. The picture is more complex than meets the eye, and clearly there's still a lot for us to learn. What we know for sure, on the other hand, is that entrepreneurs accept the view that taking some level of risk is inevitable. This, of course, stands to reason. Setting up a new business, after all, is an inherently risky thing to do. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 45% of new businesses fail within the first five years. So how could it be that entrepreneurs don't have a bigger appetite for risk than the rest of us, but yet are able to make what seem like very risky decisions when starting their companies? Cyril Bukeas observed some key traits in successful entrepreneurs that may help to explain this. There's a couple of things that they do differently. The first one is that they are really, really, really good at doing things that will protect them from failures that they can't tolerate. So at the, at the start of the entrepreneurial journey, they think really carefully about what resources they need to start a new business. And then they establish a level of loss that they are comfortable with. And they avoid all kinds of projects that create risks they don't want to take. And so in doing so, they avoid investing time or money or any sort of resource that they're actually not willing to lose. And we call that the affordable loss principle. In other words, they're not Las Vegas amateurs throwing money at the roulette wheel in the hope of hitting it big on their favorite number. Instead, they're more like professional poker players, calculating what they can afford to lose, making informed estimates of their chances of success, and gambling accordingly. So, instead of taking a scattergun approach to risk, successful entrepreneurs are a lot more forensic with their investments. Cyril Bouquet has noticed another trait that further reduces their exposure to risk. At the beginning of the new venture, the level of uncertainty they face is super, super high. Right? Perhaps they have new ideas about a product, a service, a business that they like to launch in the market, but there's plenty of things they simply don't know. They don't know if they're doing something that will be valued by customers. There might be all, all kinds of technical and legal issues involved. And often they haven't figured out the business model yet uh, that will make this idea successful in the market. So they need to manage risk very, very carefully. So they run cheap experiments to gather data, test and validate their thinking. And as they learn what works and what doesn't work, they essentially manage to reduce the risk. And as they reduce the risk, they can invest more and more into their entrepreneurial journey. You could think of this as the sandbox principle. Rather than making a potentially ruinous bet on a market they don't fully understand yet, or rolling out a new feature they're not sure customers will like, successful entrepreneurs tend to do a lot of trialing and testing, often on the cheap, gathering data that helps them to make better decisions. James Dyson famously built more than 5,000 prototypes of his bagless vacuum cleaner in his garden shed. It was a frustrating process, but he regarded each failure as one step closer to solving the problem. When he did eventually show the product to the big vacuum brands, he expected them to jump at the chance to license his bagless cleaner. Instead, they rejected his concept, seeing it as a threat to their lucrative business model of selling replacement bags. For Dyson, this was a major setback, but it didn't deter him. The product actually worked pretty well, so he went back to his shed and persevered. But a thorny question remains. Because to get to the point where you have a startup to experiment with involves a high level of risk. 
you have to make the leap in the first place. Of quitting a stable job, remortgaging a house, taking out a bank loan, doing whatever it takes to get the business started. To a lot of us, that might sound like a really big gamble. Here again, though, Cyril Bouquet has found that the myth does not really match up to the reality. We hear a lot of stories of, of, of people throwing themselves into the unknown, taking unconsidered risks. But there's very little evidence that actually suggests this is indeed the case. Right? I mean, most people find ways, again, to try something new, maybe experiment with a, with a new business when they have a, a safety net around them. But, but I, you know, I believe all those stories about Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates, you know, starting their new venture into their garage right uh, are largely overstated and it's and it's mostly part of a of of a myth right that we that we often subscribe to where we want people to be heroes who are taking unconsidered level of risk and and then enjoying the the benefits of their rewards you know when they succeed uh, but but most of the case that's not true garden sheds like the one James Dyson used or any number of garages in silicon valley have become the epitome of billionaire cool you can even take tours of the garages that spawned Hewlett-Packard, Apple, and Google. But these stories hide a very pedestrian and practical truth. Those founders were not in garages and sheds because they were cool. They were there because they were cheap. In fact, there is some evidence to suggest that the more fancy the offices of startups are, the less likely they are to succeed. Sarah Blakely continued to sell fax machines for two years after she launched Spanx while working to fine-tune the product and garner the interest of department store buyers. Faced with an uncertain environment, successful entrepreneurs are cautious, not reckless. So, if we know a little more about the risks that most successful entrepreneurs aren't taking, what about the gambles they do make? To learn more about that, I spoke with serial entrepreneur Ulf Sandberg, who has started, built and sold multiple businesses across four countries. One of his current ventures is Paradigm Communications, a satellite communications company based in the UK where he is founder and managing director. I began by asking him whether he saw himself as a risk-seeking person. I wouldn't say I'm risk-seeking. I think there are very few people who are risk-seeking. Um, if by risk you risk life, death, <laughs> uh, your livelihood or something like that. I think the right question would be, are you adventure-seeking? Are you willing to question things? Are you willing to go look for new answers? Are you willing to dig a bit deeper? Are you willing to at least read a new type of book or do you want to stick to exactly what you know and what you have heard all your life? And I think that, to me, at least sets aside the people who dive into entrepreneurship and become successful or the people who don't. So for Ulf Sandberg, entrepreneurship is more about adventure-seeking than risk-seeking. But what does that mean in practice? I think you can draw parallels with sport. You can get into different sports. And what, what you do if you really want to get into them is you study them, what they're all about. You train, you prepare, you plan, and then you try to go and execute if you get into competing or if you get competitive or you do bigger adventures. And to me, that's very similar to the way business works, at least in my experience so far. You spot an opportunity and it's not because you're diving into something you know nothing about, but it's more because you see a gap or you see a need for something that you hopefully know something about. <laughs> and you can go and try to get closer to it, talk to people who would be your customers, talk to people who would need that product or service, and then come up with an offering and then go execute. 
And most of the time things don't work out the way you think they are. <laughs> so you have to have that flexibility with you as well and ease of move. And to me, that's sort of what drawn me the most to entrepreneurship because you can actually affect what you do. James Dyson learned as much as he could about the vacuum cleaner business, even though he'd never worked in the industry and was not an engineer. Entrepreneurs learn, prepare and train themselves, kind of like an athlete. And by doing so, they reduce the risk of failure. I think there are very few people who would just run straight out and take ski touring, for example. Very few people who should go, never been skiing before, grab a pair of skis, hike up the mountain on their own and try to cross a couple of glaciers and climb a few mountains. I think there are very few people who would throw themselves at that without at least trying something. <laughs> and I think it's the same with, with business. You wouldn't go and say, okay, let's go start this new corporation. We're going to start manufacturing mobile phones. <laughs> know nothing about it. We're going to find some people who do and put it all together. And I, think, I think it's much more logical than that. And because you know so much about that thing, it's actually less risky than it may look like from the outside. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole plan. I mean, a few of the... Um, things I've done. We started a, um, um, a tech, tech refurb business in San Francisco. So we set up the business, got a great deal on a big warehouse north of the Golden Gate Bridge, <laughs> um, started to do the business. We only needed a fraction of the warehouse. So we were contemplating what to do with the rest of it. Noticed that the storage business in the area up there were fairly full. So we built out part of it with storage boxes. And then a few months down the road, you start looking at how this all comes together, the two separate businesses. And the amount of effort for the storage business was very limited <laughs> compared to the export business. The amount of investment, about uh, even, but the return on investment was just so much better from the storage business than from the import-export. So what we then did is we ditched the idea of import-export and <laughs> switched the whole thing around to a storage business. And I think that's the flexibility that if you're smaller, if you're willing to look hard upon the situation yourself, you're, you're able to sort of find a way through. So it sounds like you don't really subscribe to the view that entrepreneurs are big risk takers. I think the opposite. If you do take a lot of risks, it will come and catch you at some point in time. You will trip up eventually. For Ulf Sandberg, like so many other successful business people, entrepreneurship isn't about risk. It's about being adventurous, well-prepared, and receptive to opportunities. And sometimes it means switching focus if something you're trying to do falls short of your expectations. Here again is Cyril Bouquet. I think on this notion of risk-taking, right? I mean, the, 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 the first thing that we have to realize is that entrepreneurs do take risks, right? <laughs> Doing something new is risky, right? What is interesting is that they don't necessarily have a higher propensity to take risks than the general population that they manage the risk so that they're comfortable with it, right? I think that's what really differentiates the entrepreneurs from the non-entrepreneurs, but they do take risk. And in fact, they take at least three types of risk, right? The first one is often financial, right? They invest financial resources into the pursuit of a new venture. The other one is psychological. When you believe in, in, a, in a new business idea, you become attached to it and you certainly don't want to fail. Nobody likes to fail. And so when you do fail, Right. It creates questions for your for your ego, for your own sense of self-confidence. Um, uh, and, and there's also finally a social risk, right? Uh, entrepreneurs, like everybody else, are, are subject to, uh, to the, the judgment of, of other people, whether they are investors, whether they are colleagues, friends or family, and nobody likes to fail. So, so again, they do assume different types of risks 
But they, what is really important is that they find a way to manage that risk very effectively. So they, they gain the confidence that they can do it right, without overexposing themselves. So successful entrepreneurs do take risks, but not in the way that many people imagine. They tend not, for example, to make big material commitments or take big financial risks. In fact, they are quite conservative when it comes to money, preferring to set up a fixed amount to invest and then walk away if whatever they're doing doesn't work out. However, they do seem to be more comfortable taking other types of risk. Management guru John Hegel once said that for entrepreneurs, the risk of embarrassment, ridicule, skepticism, and humiliation was much less intimidating than it is for most people. The worst risk for an entrepreneur is the risk of not putting yourself out there to give it a go. It's what Ulf Sandberg refers to as being adventure-seeking. A second risk that entrepreneurs seem to factor into the equation is the possibility of being locked in, as this goes against their need to be agile and switch focus if a new opportunity arises. In a traditional risk management context, variance is a bad thing. You want to minimize the impact of changes to any of your assumptions. Variance is something to be minimized. But for entrepreneurs, variance or unexpected events are more like opportunities to be leveraged. Being locked in either to a financial commitment, a plan or an idea is actually a big risk for them. Keeping this in mind, I'd like to return to a moment we encountered at the start of this episode. Richard Branson founding Virgin Atlantic on a wing and a prayer. Here he is telling the same story, but this time to a business audience sponsored by the Wall Street Journal. It opens with a phone call to Boeing following the canceled flight. I went to Boeing. Um, I remember the telephone call. Hello, uh, this is Richard Branson. Um, I wonder whether you could sell me a secondhand 747. Um, True to form, Branson jokes about the Boeing rep wanting to know more about his company and a long pause on the end of the line when he explained that he had a record company that looked after bands like the Sex Pistols or the Rolling Stones. The rule-breaking risk-taker strikes again. But then there's a turn, a detail that we didn't get in the first telling. But the, the, key, the key point there was we, we said to Boeing, look, uh, we don't know whether this is going to work out. Um, you know, we, 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 we realize uh, it's risky. We think that there's a gap in the market. We think that people want a quality airline. Um, we want to be able to hand the plane back at the end of the first 12 months if it doesn't work out. And that was the, that was the element of protecting the downside. And, that, and that's you know, the critical thing in, a, in, in any move you make in business. This is not what we might expect from a risk-addicted maverick. Instead, you can hear that Branson is quite clearly linking opportunities with risks. He was willing to take the plane, but he also wanted to reduce the risk of doing so. First, he planned to lease it, not buy it. And second, he wanted to have the flexibility to hand it back after a year if his idea didn't work out. He was practicing what Cyril Bouquet earlier referred to as affordable loss. So even one of the most famously reckless entrepreneurs of all time, who once claimed to have cheated death 76 times, was very careful not to risk any more than was necessary to get his idea off the ground. To conclude, yes, successful entrepreneurs are risk takers, but their definition of risk is very different than it is for the rest of us. They may share our concerns about operational or financial risks, but they are less bothered about social or psychological risks. No one likes to fail, but they are more likely to accept that failure is part of the process of being an entrepreneur. Maybe you fancy trying your hand at starting a business 
and branching out on your own. But you've always hesitated because the risk seems so daunting. And you've heard multiple stories of heroic entrepreneurs risking everything. But the messages in this episode suggest a different truth. Most entrepreneurs don't put everything on the line. They often don't even overextend themselves. They start with a few careful, calculated moves. They listen, learn, and if necessary, adjust. What do you need to be careful about? Try to avoid decisions that lock you into a fixed path as much as possible and be prepared for the inevitable setbacks and be ready to learn from them. When Jeff Bezos was weighing the possibility of quitting his Wall Street job and moving across the country to start an online bookstore, he went to speak to his boss about it. The boss was understanding but offered the following advice. I think it would be a better idea, he said, for somebody who didn't already have a good job. Bezos carefully reflected on the advice, but concluded that among all the possible risks, the risk of not doing it was the one that was going to haunt him the most. You've been listening to Management Under the Microscope, written and presented by me, Michael Wade, and produced by Pete Norton. We're a production of the IMD Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I by IMD, which has pieces on everything from how to avoid a CEO succession crisis to the ongoing battle between Hollywood studios and streaming giants, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. Next week, we'll be turning our attention to a story that brings together the Terminator movie franchise, Elon Musk, and the economics of robotic hairdressing. Our topic, artificial intelligence, and the dangers it might pose to the human workforce. Across two mini-episodes, we'll assess the optimistic and the pessimistic views of an AI-powered future, leaving you with a clearer idea of what's coming, which jobs are most at risk, and what you can do about it. Hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this to be sure to hear the episodes as soon as they come out. And finally, if you're enjoying this show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. It really helps us to find new listeners. To make this even easier than usual, we've included a link in the show notes, which will bring you straight to our page on Apple Podcasts. From there, all you have to do is tap the stars to rate us. And if you want to leave a review suggesting topics you'd like to hear covered in a future series of the show, please do so. We'll read them all. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next edition of Management Under the Microscope.